Turn with me to the first chapter of Acts, and we'll continue our study in Luke's history of the church. This, as you know, is volume two of the author Luke's history of the emerging church, the first century church. This is his account of its establishment and its expansion. And as we've seen, this is uh, the pattern for us. Luke uh, is telling us what the church was and what the church ought to be. And as we saw two weeks ago in chapter 1 in the introductory section, verses 1 through 11, the Lord delivers this mandate to the church to be witnesses of him throughout the whole world and through all time. And secondly, there is a, an, an explanation or, de, or a description of the power that's available to us to make that, uh, that mission possible, the power of the Holy Spirit, whom the disciples were told to wait for. And as we pick up the story in, in verse 12 this morning, the disciples are leaving the, uh, uh, the Mount of Olives and making their way back to uh, Jerusalem after our Lord's ascension. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons that was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of Jesus until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two men thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The uh, disciples after the ascension came down the west side of the uh, slopes of the Mount of Olives, crossed the Kidron Valley, and went over into the city of Jerusalem on Mount Zion, made their way through the streets of Jerusalem to the upper room, which is probably the same room where they celebrated the last uh, meal uh, with the Lord. We're told that there were about 120 disciples that gathered in that, that room. That's uh, the net result of Jesus' ministry. Those were the true Christians. The rest had forsaken him and, and had fled after his crucifixion. The names of the uh, apostles are given. This is a list that's found elsewhere in the Gospels, and Luke includes, uh, includes this list in his uh, first uh, volume on Christian origins. Uh, there's nothing particularly significant about the list except Judas is missing. There are now only 11 apostles. 
In addition, we're told that Jesus' brothers were there, James and Jude, that we know through their writings in, in the New Testament, and uh, his other two brothers, uh, Joseph and Simeon, and perhaps his sisters as well, and, and his mother Mary, and 120 uh, disciples, ex-hoodlums, ex-drunks, ex-prostitutes, a uh, religious zealot, uh, an old uh, political hack, Matthew, who, a quisling, who had sold out to the Romans and against his own people, the Jews, but people whose heart had changed, and this was the foundation upon which the early church was based, that sort of people. And they were gathered around uh, the apostles in this uh, upper room. Now, it happened on one occasion that Peter began to teach. He uh, took uh, perhaps a scroll of the book of Psalms, and he began to expound on two of the Psalms. Now, we know from the uh, Gospels and uh, also Acts, or Luke's description of the 50-day, uh, 40-day post-resurrection ministry of our Lord that he interpreted much of the Old Testament to them, and th these may well be two of the Psalms that Jesus interpreted to the, uh, to the apostles. Psalm 69 is a psalm that describes David's zeal for God's house and uh, his zeal for God in general. Uh, so zealous was David that his, his own family turned against him. They thought that he had become a, a religious nut, and uh, they were highly critical of, of his actions. Uh, as you know, his wife, Michal, laughed and ridiculed and derided him when he danced in front of the ark, and it's perhaps descriptive of, of the attitude that, that his family had toward David, his intense love for God, uh, turned people off that couldn't understand him. And Psalm 69 describes his feelings. Included in that psalm is the uh, statement that Peter quotes in verse 20. It is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead or his farm be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it. In other words, Peter interprets that psalm as though it's the Lord himself who is speaking and, and the enemies that were uh, arrayed against David in Psalm 69 are here uh, equated with, uh, with Judas, Jesus' enemy. In other words, he puts these words in Jesus' mouth and he makes the enemy of David Judas himself. And what uh, is a prayer in the psalm, let his farm be desolate is fulfilled, Peter says, in, in Judas. And then he cites another psalm, Psalm 109, which is very similar, where David again has a number of enemies, detractors, and he uh, prays that God will, will take action against them. And the second quotation in verse 20 comes from this psalm, his office, let another take. So Peter makes two observations from the psalms. The first is that Judas' farm will be desolate. No one will live on it. And he will be replaced by, by someone else. Now, remember, Luke is writing this account for a man named Theophilus, who was a high Roman official and who was, I believe, uh, the man who defended Paul in, in court. And he was unfamiliar with many of the facts. That's why you have this parenthetical uh, section concerning Judas, this description of Judas' uh, gruesome death. Now, we have to piece things together. It's difficult to know exactly what happened to Judas, but this is what I think occurred. I don't really think Judas wanted Jesus to die. I think he thought that uh, 
that the betrayal would result in Jesus declaring himself for who he was, the Messiah. Jesus had told the apostles that they would sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes, and Judas thought that he would be one of those who would sit in a, in a position of, of leadership, and he was looking forward to that time when Jesus declared himself, revealed himself as, as the Messiah. Judas, as you know, was a thief. He was the treasurer uh, of the apostolic band, and he kept his hand in the till. And over a long period of time, he had, uh, he had stolen a great deal of money and apparently had bought a field with it. For what purpose, we can only guess, but a farm close to Jerusalem, where I suppose he thought he could retire when Jesus came into his own and, and uh, Judas gained the recognition that he thought he, he deserved. So he, he bought a farm, and that's where he was going to live out his remaining years. When he betrayed Jesus, he thought that Jesus would then do a miracle, as he had done in the past, protect himself, he would be seen for who he was, and Judas would get what was coming to him. But as you know, the Lord refused to defend himself. He was crucified, or was taken to trial, and Judas saw that the whole plan had gone sour, and so he went to the Sanhedrin and tried to give the money back. But as you know, they wouldn't take it. So he flung the 30 pieces of silver into the treasury, in the floor of the treasury, and he went out and hanged himself on this field, apparently, that he had bought. And uh, he must have hung there in the hot sun for a number of days, undiscovered, until he, his body broke loose from the rope and he fell to the ground, and to use Luke's graphic phrase, he, is, he burst asunder. And because the field was defiled, I think the Sanhedrin then took the 30 pieces of silver and bought it from Judas' heirs and made out of it a cemetery. So the prophecy was literally fulfilled. Judas' farm was never inhabited, at least not by live people. It became a cemetery. Now note that Peter is basing his uh, statement on Scripture. He goes back to Scripture. That was the authority for the early church. This psalm predicted that this would occur, and this is precisely what happened. Now he cites another, uh, another psalm, Psalm 109, in which uh, the apostles were told that they were to replace Judas. And so Peter takes the next step which is to find a replacement for the, uh, for the betrayer. Now, the odd thing is the way they went about choosing his successor. They cast lots. Now, don't uh, envision a casino scene. They weren't rolling dice. They, uh, in those days, they used a couple of dies of different colors, or they might be stones, a black stone and a white stone, and, and they would decide that... Uh, White uh, stood for Matthias, and, and uh, black stood for the son of Barsabbas, and, and they would reach into a bag and take out one stone and uh, determine from the color of the stone who was, who was chosen. But it still seems odd to us, doesn't it, that they would use this particular method. Uh, it, it's almost like saying eeny, meeny, miny, moe, or drawing straws. It's, it's almost like magic. But what we miss is that before they drew lots or cast these lots, they prayed. Verse 24, they said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now notice what they did. They first of all turned to Scripture. They based their decision upon Scripture. Scripture predicted this man's farm would be desolate and this man himself would be replaced by another, so we must replace him. 
Then they used good common sense. They knew that the replacement had to be someone who had apostolic authority, that is, someone who had followed Jesus during the time that he, as Luke puts it, or Peter puts it, came in and went out from us. From the time that uh, he was manifest in his baptism until the ascension, someone who had followed Jesus during that time. And they began to look around at the 120 that were gathered, and they found two who met the qualifications. Now the question, how do we decide? Both are qualified. Perhaps we ought to choose both. But that wasn't proper because there could only be 12 apostles for some reason. Jesus had said earlier that they would rule over the 12 tribes, and so 12 seemed to be the appropriate number. So they had somehow to disqualify one man. Both were spiritually qualified. How would they decide? And so they drew lots. No, no, that's not how they decided. They depended upon God to make the choice for them. They said, Lord, you know, you've chosen one of these men. Now let us know. In other words, the method wasn't important. They weren't counting on the method to determine God's will, to discover uh, a measure of guidance in this issue. They were counting upon the sovereignty of God to reveal it. It didn't make any difference what method they chose. They could have drawn straws, or they could have counted any, meeny, miny, more, or they could have thrown them a, a baseball bat and, and measured it off by their fists. It didn't make any difference because they weren't trusting the method. They were trusting God. And that, I believe, is the, is the basis for discovering the will of God in all things. The will of God is not hard to discover if we want it. God will let us know. It is his problem to reveal his will, not our problem to discover. The problem with most of us, I think, is, as Christians, evangelical believers, is that we somehow feel that we have to have some method to discover the will of God, and what it amounts to is that we are no longer walking by faith. We're not trusting God to reveal His will. We are trusting some scheme, some plan, five ways, three things we line up, or whatever, instead of counting upon God. God wants us to know His will more than we want to know it. And he'll let us know. Now, Luke's purpose for putting this story in his history is so we will understand where Matthias came from. He was the one who ultimately was chosen. It was necessary to have a full complement of apostles before the church could go on. The foundation had to be relayed. One block had to be replaced. That's his purpose for placing it here. But we discover from this account some very important things about discerning the will of God gives us a pattern, a procedure to follow as a church and as individuals in gaining guidance. Now, I find in talking to uh, Christians that this issue of the will of God is one of the most crucial questions that we face. Who will we marry? Where shall we work? Shall we buy this house or not? And uh, that question comes up over and over again. I, I suspect that uh, perhaps a third of the counseling that I do centers around this issue of the, of the will of God for my life. And it's always been a big question for me. But I have discovered over the years that all of the verses that were pointed out to me as a young person that have to do with the will of God have one after another been taken away from me in the sense that they don't have anything whatever to do with, with guidance. Erna Homer asked me this morning if I had some new heresy for you. Um, 
and this is it, okay? <clears throat> For example, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know that verse that's widely used to gain guidance. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Now, that's a good word, isn't it? If you want to know where to go to college next year, you want to know whether you should marry this young man or this young woman, if you should change jobs, you trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and you don't lean on your own understanding, and he will direct your paths, right? Well, yes, that's true, except in the Old Testament, everywhere that expression, direct your paths, or make, literally, make straight your paths, occurs. It has to do not with guidance, but with godliness, personal righteousness. That's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is talking about. That if we trust him and don't rely upon ourselves, he will increasingly align us with his character. To make straight your path means to align you with the law in the Old Testament. And for us, it means to, align, to be aligned with the character of Jesus Christ himself has to do not at all with guidance, but with personal righteousness. Another that we use frequently is Psalm 32, uh, 32 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye upon you. The problem is that if you look at that psalm, that's not God speaking at all. It's David. It's called a masculine, a teaching psalm, and it's David teaching us. He goes on to say, don't be stubborn like the ox or the mule. And, and he instructs us about life. That, that verse has nothing whatever to do with, with guidance. And then there's the passage in Isaiah 30 where Isaiah says, you will hear the teacher behind you, and he will say, this is the way, walk in it. And uh, the New American Standard Bible capitalizes the T as though it's God. Now, there's a verse on guidance, but if you look at the chapter carefully, you'll see that it has nothing whatever to do with God's guidance, the teacher is the prophet, is the first part of the chapter. It makes it very clear. Israel had turned their back on God. They had turned their back on the law. And Isaiah says, you will hear a voice behind you, the prophet speaking from behind your back, saying, this is the way. Come back to the law. Repent. And look at Colossians 1.9. Here's another that we use frequently. Colossians 1.9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we say, aha, there it is. God will reveal his will if I ask for it. But read on. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's his will. And I'm convinced that everywhere in both the Old and New Testament where we have that description, the, that, that term, the, the will of God, he's talking not about guidance but about personal righteousness, God's will as it's revealed in, in Scripture. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, which is then spelled out in the verses that follow. It has to do with righteousness. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. It has to do with personal righteousness. 
Same is true in Ephesians 5, 17 through 19. It has to do with personal righteousness. In each of those cases, 99 and 99 one-hundredths percent of God's will is already revealed. It's in the Bible. It has to do with the kind of people that we are to be, the sort of character we're to manifest. Well, that's helpful, but what about the future? How do I make decisions about my vocation or my mate? What do I do? Well, again, these verses that I've that have traditionally been taught me don't help a great deal, nor do some of the schemes that are presented. For example, I've always heard that uh, in a multitude of counselors there is safety. That's true, isn't it? Doesn't Proverbs say that? Yes, it does. And so I was told you should gain the counsel of godly people. And if uh, a number of godly people agree, then that's God's will for you. The problem is the Bible also says that, that men are fallible. Uh, we make mistakes, even in aggregate. And no, no community of men or women are any, really any less infallible or any more infallible than an individual. We can all be wrong. Your elders have been wrong in the past, though we have acted in, in uh, out of uh, unanimity. That doesn't surprise you to know that. It just surprises us. It surprises you to know that we know that. <laughs> As uh, C.S. Lewis puts it, uh, no, no combination of bad eggs will ever make a good omelet. <laughs> now, yes, should we get counsel from others? Yes, absolutely. Makes sense to talk to other people. But do you realize that everyone that you talk to can be wrong? It's happened. I can think of two or three times in my past that I was given counsel by a number of people, and in retrospect, it turned out to be they, their counsel was absolutely wrong. Well, uh, how about circumstances? We should always test circumstances. If the door is shut, we go to another door. Maybe, but maybe we ought to push hard on the door. Maybe the door is just closed. It isn't locked. Maybe we ought to try the... Try to handle. As Jesus said, when the door doesn't open, you keep knocking. If, if, if Paul had taken circumstances to be the will of God for him, he would never have gone to Europe. Billy Graham would never have gone to Moscow. Circumstances aren't always the determinant. Well, what about the so-called peace of God? Now, that's a sure thing. If you feel peaceful in your heart, then you can know. And if you feel restless or you lose that peace, then that's certainly not the will of God, right? Turn with me to Colossians 3.15. That's the passage that's often used to establish that, uh, that principle. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, uh, indeed you were called one body, and be thankful. The word is translated rule here. You know, you'll note in the side margin of the NASB is act as an arbit arbiter or uh, as an umpire. And I've often heard this, this verse explained in this way. The peace of God calls the decisions just as an umpire does in a baseball game. Have you ever heard that illustration? 
If you feel peaceful, then go ahead. If you don't feel peaceful, then that's God saying, whoop, women, stop. But look at the context of this verse. Look at verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And look at the last part of verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body. He's not at all talking about subjective inner peace or quietness of heart. He's talking about outward objective peace or unity, lack of discord or disharmony within the body. It's clearly Paul's point. What he's saying is that we need to act in such a way that we do not destroy the harmony of the body. That's the arbiter. That's the umpire. That's what calls the decision. When I set out to act, I should ask myself, is this going to create harmony? Is this going to bring people together? Or is it going to be destructive and disruptive of relationships? That's what he's talking about. It has nothing whatever to do with peace of heart. As a matter of fact, when we talk about peace of heart, we're really talking about pure subjectivism. We're talking about feelings, and all of us know that feelings don't amount to anything. Feelings can be, deter can, can be, uh, can be swayed by fear or feelings of inadequacy or doubt or insomnia or sickness. Feelings come and go. We all know we can't trust feelings. Well, then what do we do? I, I was told that if you line up circumstances and counsel of friends and the peace of God and everything lined up, then that was surely God's will for me. I would never miss. But circumstances don't always indicate the direction we ought to go. People can all be wrong. My feelings can be totally wrong. I remember how I felt a couple hours after I asked Carolyn to marry me. I'm going to have all kinds of second guessings and doubts. And, and I find it happens all the time. Well, what do we do? Are we at sea? No. No, not at all. You know, God wants to guide you through life. And if you want God's will, you will not miss it. It is not your responsibility to find God's will. It is his responsibility to give it. And I don't know how he will give it. That's up to him. But when you have to make the decision, you will know. You see what the apostles did when they were choosing Matthias? They followed Scripture. They began with the Word, and that's always where we begin because almost all of God's will, certainly in terms of character, is revealed in the Bible. We don't need to know any more than that. It's there. If I owe someone money, I need to pay it back because the Bible says so. I don't need to pray about that decision. I don't even need to think about it. I just need to do it. And if I can't pay them back, then I need to go and make arrangements to pay it back or at least let them know that I'm working on it. Because Scripture says don't keep on owing any man anything except love. I don't have to ever question whether it's right to uh, leave Carolyn. I don't even have to think about that. That issue is settled for me. God hates divorce. I don't need to, to think twice about whether it's right to embezzle funds or to run off with... Uh, your secretary or whatever. Those are issues that are settled for us. That's God's will. And in those areas that are indeterminate, that we're not sure, it becomes God's problem to let us know. And I do not know how he will let you know. And he may not let you know until you have to know, but he will let you know. That's the point. You're not at sea. And I think the method is really irrelevant. 
I think we need to avoid magic. You know, some people uh, wait for some sign if the phone rings between 6 and 7 tonight, it's God's will for me to go to work tomorrow morning or whatever. <laughs> That's the sort of thing we ought, to, we ought to avoid at all costs. God doesn't... I was talking to someone the other day who said that they, a friend of theirs was thinking about going to Hawaii as a missionary. They had this certain Im impulse feeling they ought to go to Hawaii as a missionary. I think it's a great idea. I'd love to go to Hawaii as a missionary. <laughs> And they keep getting inputs from God. Uh, they turn on the radio and someone is advertising a trip to Hawaii or someone. They take that as God's sign that he's getting across to. No, no, that's not the way God gets across to us. We start out by saying, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll be whatever you want me to be. We untie all the strings. We say, Lord, here I am. Anything. And then we act according to Scripture. We do the things we know we have to do. Uh... We just obey. And then it becomes God's responsibility, his sovereign responsibility to let us know what, what the next step is. If you'll pardon a personal illustration, uh, in 1977, I left Peninsula Bible Church after 18 years, and I didn't have the foggiest idea where I was going. I, was, I just knew we, we had to go. There were 22 pastors and 3,000 people, and I thought, my goodness, what in the world am I doing here? And and uh, we just decided that it was time to go. So I went to school for a year, and that gave us something to do for a while. And then we started to run out of money. And uh, April of 1977 rolled around, and I knew I had to start making some decisions. Where do I go next? And uh, there were three options. I had an opportunity to go to Westmont to teach, and there was a church in Southern California that had written to me, and there was Cole Community Church. I went down to Westmont and uh, talked to the people down there, spent a week down there. Everything looked great. I thought, boy, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to teach. So it was all set in my mind. Came back home, and uh, about three weeks later, David Winters, the president of Westmont, called and said that they had decided to reorganize the Old Testament department and they didn't need another man after all, and so would I wait a year? I couldn't. I was running out of money. So I said, well, no, I don't think we can do it. So that shut that door. And uh, a little bit later, we went down to uh, Southern California to look at this church, and there were just obvious markers that we could not miss, that that was not what God wanted us to do. No question about it. Still didn't know where we were going. So John Barnes and Claude Levitt kept calling and saying, would you please come up here and we want to, you know, would you do this and that? And I well, I'm not sure I want to be a pastor. And Dr. Jack Mitchell, dear old Dr. Jack Mitchell, came through town and he called me up. He was a friend of, he and my father went to seminary together and they were close friends. And every time he comes into town, he checks on me to see if I'm doing okay. <laughs> and just that morning I'd said to Carolyn, I really don't think I want to be a pastor. I don't think I want to go up to coal. I don't want to use their money to, to do it because I just don't think that's the direction I'm going. And Dr. Mitchell called and he said, how are you doing? And I said, great. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, really not much of anything right now. And he said, why don't you be a pastor? And I said, oh, Dr. Jack, I, that's just not the direction I'm going. He said, David, I go all over the world, and I don't find any shepherds. Where are the shepherds? And you know how I can say it. I can't, can't say it as he says it. And I just puddled up. I don't know why. And uh, I hung up the phone, and I said, well, I don't know. Maybe we ought to look at the situation up there in Boise. And we came up here, and uh, I had an opportunity to teach at Bogus Basin, group of men, about 100 men gathered up there, and I just fell in love with these guys, like Jonathan for David. 
And I came back and told Carolyn, well, I guess that's it. And everything just fell into place. We sold our home, we found a place up here, and everything just fell into place. When the time came to make the decision, we knew. No gimmicks, no tricks, we just knew. Because all along we were convinced that God was at work both to will and to do his good pleasure. John White puts it this way. He says, we, we Christians tend to look for guidance when what we have is a guide. Oh, that's the best news in the world. I don't need to find God's will. I have a guide. He's going to let me know what he wants me to do, when he wants me to do it. I don't need to worry about God's will. That's his problem. It's like this. Suppose you're standing downtown and you want to know where uh, 8th Street Market is and uh, you stop a passerby and they say, well, you go down this street and you turn left there at the at the tracks and you go three blocks that way and two blocks that way and you'll see these red buildings and that's 8th Street Market. That's getting guidance. But suppose someone comes by and you ask them, how do you find 8th Street Market? And he says, well, I just happen to be going there myself. Would you come along with me? And I'll show you where it is. That's a guide. And that's what we have. We don't need to worry about his will. He's at work in us, in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's stand. <clears throat> Father, what a comfort it is to know that we're not at sea, lost and without a map and without a compass. We may at this point be unsure of the future, not knowing what, uh, what will come to pass, but we're confident that you know the future and you hold it in your hand and you're able to hold us and protect us and get us to the right place at the right time. That's our hope. You've promised. And we take you at your word. Thank you, Father. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.